All right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to open to the book of Ephesians and chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading verses 11 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 22. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He may create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, I remember years ago, I was in a neighborhood down in uh, when I was going to Bible college. It was just about a block or so from the Bible college. And and the housing in that neighborhood was pretty full of people that either were part of the college, a student at a college, faculty or staff at the college, or had been at the college. Most of them, we went to church together. We went to school together there. And our, our families, our kids played together in the yards and the parking lot. I remember one time we were out there playing football, as we did occasionally. And it was all just in good fun. And But then there got to be a little bit of teasing going back and forth. And that was in good fun also. But pretty soon, some of the teasing turned a little bit less fun. And there was a little bit of frustration that started to build here and there. I remember at one point, my neighbor, there's a couple of kids that were kind of jawing at each other, and he just kind of stepped right up in the face of both of them, and he's like, who are we? All of a sudden, all the attention went to him, and they just stopped. And he asked it again until finally he got the answer, and they're like, uh, Christians? <laughs> and he's like, then act like it. And it just sent a message, and then we went back to playing football. And had a fine time the rest of the game and everything. His point was clear. If we're Christians, if we've been saved by Christ, that means we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it ought to have an impact. If your home is a Christian home, it ought to have an impact in your home. It ought to make a difference in your home. Our church is a Christian church, so obviously it ought to make an impact in us. And that's the whole point as we look at this passage as he's writing to this church at Ephesus and he's teaching these people a lot of foundational truths about who they are in Christ and what their identity is in Christ. And it was at a transitional time in history and in the life of the church because before this, the church didn't really exist. The church is a new thing on the stage at this point as we look back in history. And he's going to address it as a mystery in chapter 3. And he's saying, look, in the previous ages, they didn't see this. Now, we can see little hints of it when we look back. Because like, for example, the covenant that was given to Abraham. It was given to Abraham, I'm going to make you great, make your family great, make you into a great nation. But then the very last part of that, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So you get a, a little hint of the church down the road, but not the full picture. 
the New Testament, when you get to hear the mystery is revealed and what is God doing? God is bringing people from every tribe and nation. In fact, when we get up to the book of Revelation, we get to see the end in Revelation chapter 5, which kind of sets the stage for the futuristic part of the book of Revelation. Verses 9 through 10, when John gets his heavenly vision, he sees these creatures that are around the throne of God. He sees these 24 elders that are around the throne of God. And it says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A couple chapters later, in chapter 7, now the context of this is we're in the tribulation time, and these are people that are taken out of the tribulation. I believe it's the rapture of the church that's described here. It says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we can see by looking at the beginning with the covenants of Abraham that there's a hint, but not the full disclosure of the church reaching the multitudes of the nations. When we look at the end, we see that that's the purpose of God is to reach not just Israel, but the multitudes of the nation. And we see that that's going to come to a fulfillment toward the end. But in the meantime, we're kind of at a transition time when we look back at this point in history in the New Testament time. Israel rejected their Messiah, and through their rejection, the blessing got spread to the Gentiles. And so we're seeing this time now where the even Jesus went to the Jewish people, and then He commanded His disciples, his Jewish disciples, can you go to the Jewish people and then on out to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles and to the whole world? But you know what? Even the disciples didn't get it. There's a wall there for them. In fact, that's really what a lot of the book of Acts is, is watching the disciples come up to a wall and then God knock it down. Because we can outline the book of Acts by exactly Acts 1.8. Wait here in Jerusalem till the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be my my witnesses to Judea, which is the greater area that Jerusalem was in, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, that kind of outlines the book of Acts. They start off in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, and they begin to share the gospel with all of all of Jerusalem, and then with all and with all of Judea in the surrounding area. But then persecution happens. It starts to push them out of Judea and up into other areas. And they go up into Samaria. Now they've got a real stumbling block with Samaria. It's a Gentile, Jewish population, but with a big Gentile influence. And there's been some intermarriage and stuff like that. And so it's a, it's a mixed race up there. So you got down in Jerusalem and Judea, you got the Orthodox Jewish people. We're the pure ones. And so they didn't like the Samaritans too much. Samaritans caved in. They compromised. No, they're not as good as us. In fact, they referred to the Samaritans as dogs. In the book of Acts, you see a little trail of miracles. And you know what the miracles showed? A miracle happened when the Samaritans 
accepted Christ and the Holy Spirit poured out into the Samaritans and they spoke in tongues. And they said, hey, they're speaking of the same things that we were speaking of back at Pentecost. The same Spirit in them that's in us. In other words, that was God's miraculous way of showing the Jewish people that, look, the Samaritans can become Christians too. They can be saved. And so they're like, wow, the Samaritans can be saved. Who to thunk? Right? And then it goes on from there. And Peter is at a, guy, at a guy's house, Simon the Tanner's, and he's up on a roof enjoying the cool of the evening, waiting for dinner. And he, he falls into a trance and he has a vision. And in this vision, this, this sheet is lowered down in front of him with all these animals. And it's got unclean animals on it. You know, because of the Jewish diet. And a voice from heaven says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, No way. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not doing it. It happens three times in that vision and Peter's still fighting with God. Kill it and eat it. No, no, I'm not doing it. And then a messenger comes looking for Peter. And it's from a Gentile's house. This Gentile wants to know about salvation. And his name's Cornelius. And so Peter comes down and he says, that's what the dream's about. It wasn't about whether animals are clean or unclean, acceptable or unacceptable. It's about whether the Gentiles, whether this guy's acceptable or unacceptable. And so Peter goes with him and he shares the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he and his whole household believe, put their faith in Christ, and get baptized and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And Peter's just like blown away by it. He's like, wow! Who knew that the Gentiles could be saved? In fact, when he goes back, he has to answer to people for going to dinner at a Gentile's house. What do you think you were doing? And Peter says, hey, not only that, but this is what happened. And he tells them what happened. And they're like, wow, God is allowing the Gentile people to repent. There's this huge wall in the Jewish mindset about the Gentiles coming in. And then through the book of Acts, when you get up to Acts chapter 15, they have a whole church council. Why? Because the Apostle Paul started missionary journeys. And he's going out into Gentile-dominated regions. And he comes back and the whole church is kind of up in arms. Like, what in the world is going on here? And they give all these testimonies come forth about these Gentiles coming to Christ. And, and so the church says, you're right. This is obviously God. And the church is on the same page. But you know what? Even with that, there's like, are you kidding me? Do you know what those Gentiles do? Do you know what they eat? So they had to start thinking through these things. This relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles within the church. How are we going to handle this? How is this going to work smoothly? But they did it. You, know, you want to know why? Because they're all they're one. That's the theology. They're one. He said that's what God has been involved in doing all this time. He's, and this is the, the hinge point. The two shall be one. Both will be reconciled to God. But there were major obstacles in the way. It kind of talks about in this passage, it talks about this wall of hostility. And many commentators have said, well, what is that exactly referring to? Is it the wall between the court of Israel and the court of Gentiles in the temple? Is it just a wall relationally between the two groups of people? At any rate, whether it's talking about a physical wall actually somewhere or not, it definitely is talking about the wall between the two groups of people, this relational boundary. But you know what? With on the wall of the temple, there is good, some good evidence in that in an inscription. And it says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. We see an example of that in Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem for the festivities and he comes into the temple at one point. And you know what? He'd been seen in other parts of town with a Gentile. 
In fact, it was with a Gentile from Ephesus. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the, of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Thankfully, you know, the temple on one corner of it is the fortress Antonia that sits up high above on one corner of the wall. And that's so that the Roman guard can keep an eye on the temple and whatever's going on in the temple. Because they don't want any kind of uprising. And that way they can quickly come down the stairs and put a squelch to the uprising. Well, that's what happened. They saw all this confusion break out and they didn't know what it was. And they rushed down the stairs and that's the only thing that kept the Apostle Paul alive. So the Jewish people, for them to bring a Gentile in... Yikes! That's a major wall to get over. Notice how the passage starts out. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You know, whenever one group labels the other group in the scenario, it is, it is not very often flattering. Did the Gentiles give themselves the name the uncircumcision? No. They would have never thought to refer to themselves as the uncircumcision. But he says, by all of you, the uncircumcision, by those who are called the circumcision. Now, what, what is that all about? Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The idea, the symbolism is the peeling of, away of the flesh. So, And you think of uh, attributing the flesh to your sinful nature. It's, it's peeling away the callousness and the, 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 the fleshly nature of ourselves to have a pure heart toward God. It was the identifying mark on the nation of Israel. They are the circumcision of Abraham. And they refer to anybody outside of that as the, the uncircumcision. The only difference between those two terms is two letters. Un. We're the circumcision, you're the uncircumcision. What, what is that saying? That's like saying we're us and you're un-us. You're not us. It's saying, look, we belong together. You, not so much. You don't belong. We're the chosen of God. You're un. That's who you are. You don't fit. That's how it was looked at. That's how it was seen. As we've already seen, Ephesians chapter 1, he's pointed to the Gentiles and say, look, you Gentile believers, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You have been predestined for this. You've been adopted by God. And so all this has to be, how is this going to work? And that's what the whole point of the passage is about. The whole point of the passage is, look, you guys have had this, there's this division there, there's this wall there, this wall of hostility between these two groups of people. The us and the un-us, and that wall is crashing down. Jesus Christ has overcome that wall. He's making the two one. There aren't any second class citizens and the children of God. You are all one. And that's what we see all through this passage is this reconciliation. An acknowledgement. An acknowledgement of the barrier that has been there. But yet, an overcoming of that same barrier. 
As notice within the passage, we see both of those things. Verse 12, remember at one time it says you were separated from Christ. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. No hope without God. Verse 19, he also says, so then uh, in the remedy of the situation, you're no longer strangers and aliens. And so he, he talks about that fact that that was their history. The Gentile history, and this is alienated from, from the time of the, the fall and then the flood and the Tower of Babel. We, we've been alienated from God. Yes, you could come through proselytism and things like that, but that was, that was few and far between. You know, you had the court where you could worship for the Gentiles, but you're still on the outside looking in. In fact, that's really kind of when you think about it, all of this is to get us back on the inside because as far as the Garden of Eden is concerned, we're all on the outside looking in. And the whole point is to bring us all back. But he points out, he says, look, you are separated, you're aliens, you're foreigners, you're without hope. He said, but, he also uses something else repeatedly. He says, you who once were far off, in verse 13, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Um, Down in verse 15, it talks about the one new man in place of the two. So he's saying, look, it's not that the Gentiles are going to be made Jewish or the Jewish be made Gentiles. They're both going to be made one, one new man, one new creation. What is that new man? It's the church. And so he says these two are going to be made one. And then down into verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit. In verse 19, it says, Your fellow citizens, members of the household of God, uh, joined together in verse 21, being built together in verse 22. And then when we get on up to chapter 4, he's going to go through in the first six verses, he's going to talk about the unity that we have in the faith and the oneness that we have with each other. And then later on in chapter 4, he's going to talk about the importance of that oneness and actually even part of the goal as we grow together. We grow together in our faith in Christ. As you look at this, it's about this this wall of hostility that's mentioned twice. Notice in verse 14, it talks about it broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And in verse 16, that he might, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, getting rid of the hostility. And how does he do that? What do you overcome hostility with? Peace. Peace. And that's exactly what Christ establishes in our relationship with between us and God and with one another is peace. In verse 14, he says, He Himself is our peace. In verse 15, it talked about Him making peace for us and between us. And then in verse 16 and 17, it talks about Him preaching peace. Preaching peace to those who are, were far away, which is the Gentiles. Preaching peace to those who are near, which is the Jewish people, but bringing peace. He takes down that barrier between us and God, those commandments that put us outside of God. And He takes that down. He renders it ineffective and He brings us to a peace-loving relationship with God. At the same time, it's breaking down that same wall of hostility between one another. And we grow closer to one another as we grow closer to God. And you'll find that you cannot walk toward God without walking toward God together. There's not one place in verses 11 through 22 that talks about your relationship with God without also talking about our relationship with God. It's experienced within community. 
within our relationships one with another. If you're trying to live out your Christianity as some kind of individual spirituality, you are missing the boat. I'm not saying there aren't some individual aspects to it, but you are completely missing the will of God in your life if you're trying to live it out in an individual way. It was not meant to be lived individually. We are part of the same body. We are the body of Christ. So it was very important for these believers in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles, to realize that they are one and to overcome those obstacles and let that wall of hostility lay on the ground. Let it be torn down. But you see, this part of the passage is written. I found it interesting. I've gone through it and through it and through it. And I thought, you know what? Wait a minute. Who's, who are they addressing? And I realized that this part of the passage isn't written to the Jewish Christians. Because that's usually who we deal with. See, the Jewish people would have kind of a hang-up dealing with the Gentile people, and they were going to have some things they'd have to get over. But that's usually who we're talking to. You guys need to, you need to correct, you need to get over it, you need to do whatever. And they do, and they did. But this isn't written to the Jewish part of the congregation. It's written to the Gentiles. He's, like, he's saying, you, you Gentiles in the flesh, you that they call the uncircumcision, you who were alienated, And I thought, now, okay, so everything is really in this passage, everything in this part of it is addressed to them. As they stood up and read this letter in their church, this is the part that's specifically to them. And what is the message? What is the whole point? Why would he be pointing out that they were foreign, that they were alien, that they were separated? The whole point in pointing that out is, not anymore. Not anymore. He said, you who are alienated, you are not alienated. You are fellow citizens. You who are on the outside looking in, the uncrowd, you're not the uncrowd anymore. You may not have had the privilege of growing up in Israel or, or having kind of that foundation laid for you, but you know what? There is no underprivileged or unprivileged within the family of God. You who felt ostracized, who feel like you don't fit, you fit. You who didn't belong, you belong. That's the whole point of this passage. He's helping them to understand that their identity is in Christ. We talk a lot, of, a lot about identity in our society and stuff these days. And even you know, people find their identity in, in fantasies, in things that are just absolutely not in touch with reality, even to their real experience. But what he's doing is the opposite. He's saying, look, this is your real experience. You were on the outside looking in. Now you're on the inside. You are part of the family of God. So, live like it. Embrace it. Be one with one another in this relationship with God. In fact, there's really no way for you to walk in your relationship with God without being one with one another. So we're going to consider that this morning. What is my identity in Christ? Well, first of all, your identity in Christ involves a new community. A new community. He says you were aliens and you were strangers. But now, he says we are fellow citizens in verse 19 with the saints. Now, the word saints here, you know, in our day and age, because of uh, some mistaken use of the word through the Catholic Church over time, you can get the idea that saints is uh, kind of like the Hall of Fame of Christians and Christian leaders and stuff like that. That's not what a saint is. Saint, as it's used in the New Testament, is you. It's me. It's those who are being sanctified to Jesus Christ. It's whoever has put their faith in Christ is now separated from the world because of it. So he, that's, that's what he's saying. He says, you're not, you're not aliens or strangers from the saints. You're one of the saints. You're fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, you, you belong. You fit right here. Israel had a 
real way of marking in the flesh who fit and who didn't. Not in the church. In the church, if you're part of Christ, I'm part of Christ, we're part of another. We're fellow citizens. Not only do we have a new community, he also says we have a new family. New family, because he talks about the household of God. He said we are members of the household of God. Members one of another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Then also we see we have a new foundation. He says you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. It's consistent with Matthew chapter 16. Jesus and His disciples recognized that there was kind of a rift between Jesus and the religious leadership. And it was getting worse. And so Jesus, at a strategic time, takes His disciples aside and He says, Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist, risen again from the dead, or Elijah, risen again from the dead, or one of the other prophets, because amazing things were happening around him. Jesus said, all right, even more importantly, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. At that moment, Jesus tells Peter, he says, you're Peter. But he, he messes with his name a little bit. The word Peter means a little pebble. And then he says, upon this rock, that one's a little bit different than the first one. The first one's a little part of the big rock, a little pebble. The, the second one is boulder. He says, you're pebble. And upon this boulder, I'm going to build my church. Now, down through the years, there's been a lot of discussion on what exactly is the boulder. Is the boulder the statement that Peter made? The year of the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is the boulder... Peter himself. That's what the Roman Catholic Church would hold to, that, that the boulder is Peter. That, and that uh, Peter became the first pope, which historically is inaccurate, but pretty clearly, when you look at the passage, I think it's the apostles. You're Peter, one pebble, one small part of the rock. Upon this boulder, the whole group of the apostles right there, I'm going to build my church. And that's consistent with what we find here in Ephesians. He says, what is the foundation of the church. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. But with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, and that's where uh, some people come in too and say, no, the only foundation that can ever be laid is Christ. Because Paul does say that in a different place, but he's not talking quite the same context. He's not talking about the foundation of the church. He's talking about the foundation of our faith. And that's true. You can't. Christ is the foundation of our faith. But the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And the cornerstone was the most important stone in the whole building. It was taken to the corner place where it was where you're going to start the building and it was situated just right. And then everything in the entire building is lined up off of that one stone. Everything points back to that one stone. And that's the way it is in the church. Everything points back to Jesus Christ. Why do we have this peace with God? Because of Jesus Christ. It points out in this passage that it was accomplished by His blood and through the cross. And that's why He is the cornerstone of our faith. Well, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, they get the whole deal. They're standing on the same foundation the rest of us are. And then lastly, we find a new expression. And I don't know if this is the best word for this, but this is what I'm trying to communicate. When Israel was rescued from Egypt and taken out into the wilderness, God had them build the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle was God's presence. God's presence is so much more than that because even when Solomon dedicated a temple, he says, look, Lord, we know that the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. The tabernacle could not contain God. 
God is everywhere all the time. But it's a representative, it's an expression of his presence in his home. And so that's why I say that this is an expression. It talks about them being built together into a holy temple. What does that mean? What, what exactly are we? We are the expression of God's presence in this community. Do you see that? God's presence was seen to be by the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud in that tent in the wilderness. Now God's presence in our society, in our day, is expressed through us collectively as the church. What an awesome thing to think about. Can you imagine what it would have been like for those Gentiles to read that letter the first time? It starts off, you were, you were aliens. You were the uncrowd. You were, the, you were separated. You were shut out. You are, to at the very end, you are the expression of God's presence in this world. That is an awesome thing. You know, this was us. We were the uns. We were the outside. But through Jesus Christ, what He did through His blood and on on the cross has brought us in. He's made us fellow citizens. He's made us members of God's family, God's household. He's building us as one into the expression of Himself as His temple. 